I am a huge admirer of Nigel Adkins, the best physio. Uh, what is it? Yes. Who needs Mourinho? We've got our physio. Um, yeah. He comes across so well. I think he's in management at, oh, I don't know who, who is it. No, he's he isn't. Charlton now. He's oh, in Charlton. Yeah. yeah, they'll go up. They'll, they'll do brilliantly. Just looking yeah. at the Southampton squad, uh, Long, Ings, Che, Muck Adams, the great Nathan Redmond, who is one of my favourite players, just scored an amazing goal for Derby against Watford once upon a time. And then you've got the kids, Gineppo and Abafemi, Stuart Armstrong, very experienced. The great Theo is back there. And uh, of course, behind the scenes, well, we know Southampton are up for sale. Yeah. So that could be a problem. Newcastle up for sale as well. And that might bring disharmony. But if you focus on the football, this manager um, is probably the best since Pochettino. He never seems to be in the news for bad moves. Pellegrino brought in a lot of players. Puel, of course, quiet. Coman, ex- exceptional. If you were to rank Hasenhüttl, Coman and Pochettino, where would, where would they go? One, two, three? That's a really difficult question now. Um, I mean, I, I, I love Pochettino. I was gutted when Nigel Adkins was sacked uh, because so everybody loved Nigel. You can't not love Nigel. He's so positive. It must be a nightmare to live with with his positivity. <laughs> it just every, Everything is just so positive. Um, so we love Nigel, but then Pochettino came in and transformed the club and it, it was actually the, the right decision because he, he did so well. I was a little bit surprised how, how quickly his English... Improved when he went to Tottenham. Mm, uh, very interesting that. Yeah. <laughs> um, Have you read his book with Guillaume Balagay called Brave New World? I've read bits of it. Yes. The um, thing that comes across is just how good a relationship he had with Daniel Levy, which makes it stupid beyond belief that two years ago he was marched out the door for the man who replaced him. I will never, never understand that. I, I think Pochettino has got a lot about it. I think Kerman, I'm not convinced always by his managerial style. He did a, did a great job for us, some, some great times. And we played some fantastic football. Well, it was basically but quite. I, I, but I do like Ralph and um, it, it's amazing how the fans have stuck with him fairly solidly. You had a team that has lost 9-0 twice and still everybody is behind him. The club are behind him and um, Genuinely, he's, he's such a, a nice bloke as well. I really, really do want him to, to do well and, and not just you know, being a season ticket holder. Um, I, I think he deserves it. As you, you raise a very good point about the club being for sale and that's not necessarily so much disharmony. It's just whether we can actually sell to the right person this time, somebody that's going to see it as a, a buy into the heritage, strengthen the team and take it forward as opposed to either using it as a little bit of a cash cow or as an investment or I've, I've got no time for hedge funds that want to get involved in Boom. football clubs. Um, it, it should be about having a feel for the club and for the people and for the fans, the people of the city and the heritage and all the traditions and, and what it means to be part of a club. And if you don't get that, then I don't think you've got any place really running a football club. Here, here. Part of why I want to go down to Southampton, I've never been. The closest I got to was when Southampton fans descended on Wembley when Manolo Gabbiadini scored that brilliant goal, uh, which for some reason history doesn't recognise that goal, even though he was miles on side to the naked eye. Um, I was at yeah. that game. The League Cup final was this 2016. Since then, 
uh, or around then, two FA Cup semi-finals, also at Wembley. Um, but that game, Southampton matched. I can't remember who was manager then. Um, was it Coman? Uh, Southampton no, matched it was, Man United. It was, no, it was it was Claude Puel. Oh, right. Okay. And um, as you said, the choir man, and he absolutely should have slaughtered the, the linesman afterwards. He should have taken whatever fines were, were going to be dished out, um, and because it, it was an outrageous decision. Uh, it would have changed the, the entire game, as you say. We matched United. I still haven't quite got over that game because um, it was it was heartbreaking to have had a, a perfectly valid goal disallowed. Uh, it was just awful. Again, that's but why video came, comes in. Came, yeah, still came away from the game though with a, a, a real sense of pride um, and on a high, even though we'd lost because we played so well um, and just been cheated out of it. Yeah, although I don't, th- I remember watching the 2003 FA Cup final on telly. It was uh, you can't stop Thierry Henry in his imperial phase. But what I like to do in these football library visits, as well as giving you your laminated library card with a McDonald's Big Mac munching Matt Letitier on it, <laughs> although you can have Mickey Channon if you want. Um, yeah, the Letitier. Yeah. yeah, so I like you to name. I like p- visitors to the library to name the eleven. So. Bearing in mind that Paul Jones came on for Anti Niemi in the cup final, why did Niemi have to come off? Just it was an injury. Uh, I think it was a thigh injury. It was a um, very unusual for a goalkeeper to have to. I think it was the first one to be taken off in, a, in an FA Cup final. Yeah, you I were mean, just vengered. Yeah, a couple of memories that, that do stand out on on that game. Uh, apart from well, one was the, the big yellow wall of, of fans who created the most amazing atmosphere. I remember that. Uh, mm-hmm. The Arsenal fans were very quiet, came in in drips and drabs. A lot of them had left before the trophy presentation. A lot stayed, watched the presentation, the laps of honour, everything, just loved the whole day. Um, but the, the other thing is, career-wise, it was one of the worst days of my life because I was in the hotel with the, the team in the morning, filed my final copy before the game, a couple of last-minute previews, a couple of, you know, Rallying pride pieces, I sent all, all up on the website. Went to the stadium, but plugged in my laptop, nothing. The whole thing just dead. My laptop had died on the day of the FA Cup final. I'd got there two hours early to allow for, for technical problems, to, to sort out the Wi Fi and all the rest of it. And I just couldn't do anything. I ended up having to, to phone a form who were the hosting site at the time. They ended up having to have to get somebody at the office to watch it on the television mm. and to, to write a running report. Oh. So I couldn't do anything. From that day onwards, I always took two laptops to every game. What a, what a palaver. Um, mm. And you, you never think about that. It's like the two dictaphone rule. Always have a backup for the dictaphone. But yeah, two laptops yeah. to everything. Wow. Well, then you can have one yeah. running one thing, one running another. Um, and of course, at that oh. FA Cup final, you will have seen all kinds of journalists, all the Sunday journalists, your David Walsh's, your Brian yeah. Glanville's, your Paddy Barclays, your Paul Haywards, probably not Barney Roney just then. Uh, did you have any close contacts in the um, press box? Yeah, see, obviously I was working as a press officer as well at various times. So yeah, you would have you would have, you would have good contacts and people, that, obviously some that you get on better with than others. Just very quick, I just want to just tell you one very quick anecdote on the, uh, you said, talk about the two dictaphone rule. Um, and this is one that I do tell the students in terms of, you know, it's 
mistakes I've made in a schoolboy error. When I was uh, interviewing Matt Letizio for his autobiography, went round to his house one day to do the, the, the latest sessions of chat and schoolboy error, didn't check the batteries in the dictaphone, and I ended up having to take the batteries out of his TV remote control. How embarrassing is that? <laughs> not as embarrassing as not having all the gold from Latisse, um, <laughs> who played for England. Um, should have played a lot more, as we know. England was spoilt for choice. We're talking about, uh, well, we're, we're dropping in the fact that we're recording the week of Euro 2020. 25 years ago, it was Euro 96. Were you swept up in it? Do you feel similarly uh, swept up this week? Absolutely. I was, uh, I was still at the Echo for... Um, and I was actually covering Euro '96, so I went to all the England games and the and the final as well. Uh, I still, again, haven't got over that semi-final. And uh, not just the penalties, but that, that moment when the ball went across the face of the goal, and, yeah. and Gascon just couldn't quite sort his feet out and get that that touch to put just it. Just imagine, imagine if he'd oh. scored the same kind of redemption that Southgate feels and Stuart Pearce then felt. Yeah. Um, it occurs to me I haven't asked you to name the eleven from the cup final. So young Chris Baird was the right back. Yeah, uh, you got an English English um, left back um, who's married a Saturday. Uh, Wayne Bridge, Wayne Bridge married Frankie. Yeah, in the middle. Yeah couple of big defenders. That would be the Michael Svensson. Yep. Klaus Lundek. And Klaus Lundek. Uh, in the middle, another Svensson. Uh, Anders. Yep. Very talented player. Didn't really do as, as much as he as he should have done. Was um, he Letitia's replacement? Uh, well, yes and no, because I don't think you can ever... Um, yeah, as much as you can replace the irreplaceable. Yeah, yeah. I think that, yeah, that was the, the idea, but he just never really settled into English football the, the way... We felt he should have done. Wasn't it? Sorry, so, wasn't it Pahars, the Latvian Letizia? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was. Yeah, um, what a player he was, by the way. It just uh, picked up a lot of injuries. Mm-hmm. And can you so, name the other five? Obviously we, obviously, we missed him for the cup final as well. Uh-huh. So I think it might have been different if we'd had Marion Pahars. Yeah, but instead there was Matty Oakley. Yeah, and Brett Ormrod yep. and uh, James Beattie. Yep, yep. So. Uh, yeah, James Beattie went very close, and uh, yeah, it was a, it was a hard day. I actually felt, felt we could win that one. Yeah. yeah, it was close game. And then Telfer and Marsden was Marsden a hard man? Yes, yes, he was. Did he make your book Southampton's Hard yeah. Men, Saints and Sinners? Yes, he did. Thank yeah. you, thank uh, you for enjoying that segue. Um, he, did, he didn't um, he didn't talk as, as much about. In the book, as I'd hoped he would, about uh, some of the things he got off to up to off the field, but um, I guess that's always going to be the problem when you're asking people to to talk about some of their uh, the, the more private moments, if you like, mm-hmm. and the, the things that have gone wrong. But yeah, I, I I loved writing Saints and Sinners. It was an, an opportunity to talk to some of the the, the, the real hard men that we've had at the club over the years, you know, from the hard drinkers to the hard tacklers. Oh, of course. Um, came out on pitch in 2016. Was the writing process and the publication process as glorious as other pitch authors have found it? Yes, it was. It was, uh, it was the one I probably had the most fun with out of the, the, the pitch books. Um, the, the two facts and figures books were just hard work and research, but going out and meeting people and talking to them and interviewing them, um, 
So, as I say, some didn't talk as much as I, I would have liked. Terry Hurlock, for instance, he, he's got a, a lot of great stories to tell, but didn't really want them airing too much and didn't, didn't want to, to, to talk about it. Uh, he used to keep his, his savings in a, in a cornflake box under, uh, under his bed. Oh, wow. So, um, Different era. No agents. Um, <laughs> no, no, I remember uh, one thing he did say was that because uh, he had a problem with a lost a lot of money on a on a property deal, and uh, uh, Ian he said to him, "Yeah, how, how's your call plate?" Okay, and he said, "F me, I'm, I'm down to a variety packet now." <laughs> <laughs> That's very. And then Ian Dowie said, "Don't worry, you've got the bounce back ability about you." Um, who was harder, <laughs> Razor or Psycho? Probably psycho. Mark Dennis was probably one of the one of the most um, was one of the hardest players. I think, but literally everybody in the book that you you ask you know, who was the hardest player that you played alongside or that you faced, and virtually every one of them would say Jimmy Case, and he was he was a real hard nut. Yeah. And you know, I remember one one player saying you know, after Case had clattered somebody fairly early in the game, he said, "Well." What have we done that for? He hasn't done anything. He said, no, not today, but two years ago he did. Oh, very good. Yeah, <laughs> and he had a, had, a, had a long memory. And I'm sure uh, you and Paul must, I don't know if Paul's old enough, but you and Paul must have discussed Jimmy Case. I've just looked him up. After he played for Liverpool, he moved to Brighton, and then to yeah. Southampton, and then to Bournemouth. Hmm, I wonder what was going on in the South Coast then. Uh, but yes, Jimmy Case is well known oh. as a hard nut. Yeah, I was going to say the, the reason he went to Bournemouth was because Ian Brownfoot came in, took over from Chris Nicholl, and the first thing he did was to give Jimmy Case a free transfer, and he never recovered from that. Mm. And the fans were against him from that moment on. Yeah. Uh, and I, I remember I was being I was put in a difficult position, but the so I was writing for the Echo, and obviously he, he tried to get on with the new manager, and he wanted it portrayed as a reward for his service. Um, and that was those were the only quotes he would give me was the fact that it's a reward for Jimmy Casey's service. Was I think I, I thought found he was thought it was a threat because a lot of the fans had wanted him as, as player manager. I, I don't know, but it, it was the wrong decision. And particularly if, if you do want to play the long ball game as, as Bramford did, you need somebody that can ping a pass. And Jimmy Case could drop a, a pass over a defence on, onto a sixpence, as they say. And of course. Hard men still exist. It's just they exist at Eastleigh's level, not at the Premier League level. So with you having watched Southampton for years and years and years and years, um, by the way, would you see Southampton play the Sheffield clubs when you were in Sheffield in the late 70s studying French? (laughs) Um, No, because uh, Sheffield United were... I don't know, I really went to see Sheffield United... um, well, it's partly because it was easier to walk to, but Sheffield Wednesday at all. But Sheffield United, we went every, every other weekend, but they were uh, Division 3 as it was then, and I was there the day they got relegated to uh, Division 4. Oh, boy. Yes, and of course, Sheffield Wednesday, I know, because I've spoken to some people who have written about this era. This was the lowest ebb of their era. Southampton's lowest ebb came in 2008 when the George Burley... Um, situation didn't work out. Um, did you go? You finished twentieth that season, so you didn't go down. When did you go down to the third tier? 
relegated in 2005, 2006, 7, we know we lost out in the playoffs. Uh, and then I think the following year we got, got relegated. Yeah, so, so. Two, two relegations in three or four years. Um, I forgot that 2005 season, the season of three managers and Peter Crouch. So it, yes. it, it didn't work out, but that's all right, because Harry came in. Harry Redknapp, by the way, he's written as many books as you has have, and he can't write. <laughs> he's written four books, and they're all in the football yeah. library. Uh, what was it like dealing with Harry? It, it was like trying to nail a jelly to the ceiling. Um, <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, it was... I, I remember uh, because it obviously got his own context with the with the national media, and then and Harry's very very canny with the, the national media, and he's got a remarkable ability to make people feel uh, part of things. You, you notice him at press conferences; he'll use the journalist's first name and make them feel good and went into their ego a little bit, and it, it buys him all sorts of credit. But obviously, he'd got his context, and being in the office one night and a yellow bar came across on Sky News saying exclusive live interview with Harry Redknapp in, at six o'clock and the girl that was the press officer at the time just looked at this and thought well we don't know anything about this how's this even happened made a phone call found out he, that Harry was going to be doing a live interview at a local hotel with uh, a reporter uh, that she just happened to be in a relationship with at the time and he hadn't mentioned anything to her and then First thing we knew was when this yellow bar came across on, uh, on, on Sky. It, it was it was an interesting experience. The other uh, um, what made it harder then was uh, relegated, and Rupert brought in Clive Woodward. You had the two extremes. You had Harry proper old school, and Clive Woodward coming in uh, not just with all his newfangled and scientific ideas, but also from a completely different area of industry. So, has the, then, has that story written. been written? Maybe the uh, Athletic have done it. Maybe you should lean on Dan at the Athletic. Yeah, to... the the uh, and then Rupert made them share the same office down at the training ground. So um, that that was was some inter- interesting exchanges, I believe. Mm, I would love very, to have been a very diplomatic. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, I would have loved to be in the fly on the wall in those days. Watford were doing phenomenally well in the early 80s, as were Southampton. It had all worked out, and it should really, with Alan Ball, Kevin Keegan, uh, Danny and Rod Wallace and Mark Wright, uh, eventually, and you know this, three points behind Liverpool, second place in 83-84. Watford had done the same uh, with a bigger points gap the season before. Peter Shelton in goal and Steve Moran up front. Who was more important, the guy getting the goals or Peter Shelton? I think Steve Moran probably was, he had a really good season. Just ever so slightly before my time. Um, although I did go to the FA Cup semi-final at, at Highbury when we lost in the last minute of extra time to, to Everton. Um, but of course, as you know, went on to play Watford in the, in the final. Yes, but if history had been that. different... It would have been Southampton who would have beaten Watford, not Everton. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it should have been. Um, but we, you know, Steve Williams had been injured, and she had just fell short. But it, Adrian Heath got a last-minute winner, and it, it, again, it was, a, it was very hard to take. Yeah, a brutal journey back down. Uh, Franny Benali's got an autobiography out in a matter of weeks. I think when this goes live in August, it will have come out. If I were to speak to Franny. Uh, what I learn about his eleven red cards? <laughs> I, w- I would hope so. He's funny. Is a, a strange character because off, off 
the field, he is the nicest, gentlest, warmest person that you could wish to meet. On the field, absolute head case. 11 red cards, uh, some quite violent challenges. Yeah. Funny thing is that his wife still thinks that uh, none of them were deserved and that she still thinks that he was harshly done by by officials. On the field, he would give everything a total competitor, but um, away from the field, gentlest person you could wish to meet. And of course, does a lot of wonderful work for charity that he doesn't want to talk about, but uh, he really is uh, a mensch. And so I'm looking forward to his book. I don't know if he's written himself like Pat Nevin has, or if he's got a co-writer or a ghost. There are several, I I spoke to Matt Guy about a year ago. Matt was a Southampton fan uh, who's a groundhopper. He he goes around a lot. So I've spoken about Southampton before, but never to someone who's watched them for 40 years. So if you were to compare the Pochettino team of the mid-2010s with all those foreign players and that team of 83-84 who got the best result... Well, if you adjust for inflation, what's better, coming sixth now or coming second then? I suppose with inflation, as you say, it would be coming sixth, simply because you're up against teams with so much money. That's what makes Leicester's achievement winning the title all the more incredible. Plucky little Leicester um, with their billionaire owner. <laughs> yeah, but they, they they still can't quite compete with the uh, with the likes of the riches of the Abramoviches and you know, the city. I, yeah, I, from a personal point of view, I would say finishing second, I, it was close, it, it was there for us, it just, and, and that, and reaching the FA Cup semi-final as well, it, it was a magnificent achievement. And then every few years we get that year when everything seems to click, but it just doesn't quite happen. It's frustrating. Indeed. Uh, a couple of questions to finish before you have a long holiday before uh, it all starts up again at Southampton Solent in um, September, October. Um, well, I should ask, how difficult has this academic year been for you? I found it really difficult um, because the way I teach, and it's partly through being a football journalist and, and fan as well, but I, I love the hands-on contact, the banter, the talking to people and building a rapport, giving one-to-one help. And it's really difficult doing that on Zoom. All the lectures and, and the seminars have been online. And you, you're delivering a lecture, you throw in a joke, you've no idea if anybody's laughed because they're all on news, no idea if they're even still there because they're all turned their cameras off. Um, no, it's harder to get them to engage and to, to monitor engagement. And it, you've missed that, that personal touch. So I'm really hoping that we can all get back into the classroom uh, in the in the next year. And, and, and this this whole Zoom Teams thing is obviously really getting to me because, and I've just tweeted uh, yesterday about it. The the, substitute, the BBC put up the substitutes graphic for the team against Ukraine, and right at the top of it, you've got uh, Sam Johnston and um, the Ramsdale, and they've both got the, the little goalkeeper's icon, the, the little yellow glove. And I've just tweeted, I've been working on Zoom too long, or do they really want to ask a question? Because it looks like they've got their hands up to ask a question on, you know, on Teams. I thought that as well. 
That's very interesting. And I've hardly been on Zoom. I've been mostly, well, I've been on Zoom, but what I have to do, uh, I usually edit this bit out, but I'll leave it in. I've got a stack of Bob Dylan books on which I perch my Samsung A21, fire that into a Samsung condenser mic, which records onto Audacity. And that's how I've made it work. So I'm not able to see the person I'm speaking to because I'm a radio guy. Uh, with this nose, I don't think so. Uh, what's your next book going to be about? Um, I don't know because I'll be honest. It, it's it's a finding the time, but it's also whether the whether there's enough money in it because for the amount of hours that you put into it, it's actually not greatly rewarding. Um, now, uh, I, I did. I, having done Saints and Sinners, I'm, I fancy doing a, a, a series. You know, maybe Saints and Skippers or Saints and Scholars because um, we've had so many coming through, but it's um, get, tracking down the people and getting hold of them. And You've got a it's... whole team of undergraduates paying £9,000 <laughs> a year. That's yeah. all I'll say. Um, also, what connects Alan Ball, Graham Souness, Dave Jones, Glenn Hoddle and Gordon Strachan? There's an easy answer and a harder answer. Well, the easy answer is all Saints managers. Yeah, but I've just noticed... They've all put out memoirs. Yeah. So I don't know if you've read any of their books. Gordon Strachan's was yeah. brilliant. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I love Gordon Strachan. Um, and some of his, his, his quips were... I mean, one of the things that you say about Gordon Strachan is he does make you a better journalist because he makes you think through your questions. Um, and I remember when he was uh, appointed, I was still at the Echo, so I rang the, uh, my oppo on the Coventry Telegraph and said, what's he like to deal with? He said, well, you know, he's okay, and he's prickly, but as long as you don't ask him a stupid question. Yeah. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll bear that in mind. So first, first press conference comes along, and, and it's live on Sky, and the, the, the guy from Radio 7 was so desperate to ask the first question that he didn't think it through. So he just leapt in. So, Gordon, do you think you're the right man for the job? Mm. And Stratton just goes, no. No, I'm useless. I think they should have got George Graham instead. <laughs> and he's killed him. Yeah, and, and obviously his, his quips are legendary. You know, if you ever ask Gordon Strachan, you know, can I have a quick word? He'd say velocity and yep. walk off. I remember after his game, Middlesbrough, he was asked, you know, in what area do you think they were better than you? He said that big green one out there. Yep. And yeah, so so many of them. Uh, and of course, the legendary one with Agustin Delgado. Um, where he was asked about him and he said, oh, I've got better things to think about. I've got a yoghurt on its sell-by date. That's, that's brilliant. Um, he's now up in Scotland, so they've had a, a moderate few years. Uh, they will probably qualify for the Qatar World Cup because there are so many bloody teams. Isn't it Dundee, actually? Uh, yeah. I mean, going on the, on the World Cup, I find that harder. It literally, it's harder not to qualify than it is to qualify. It now. is. I think England, uh, England should put out the under-12s. Just belling any everyone coming through the under sixteens, put them out in our qualifiers because, yeah, it just it's easier on Harry Kane's legs. Um, We haven't mentioned Laurie McMenemy. I only mentioned him a because he's just joined Twitter, and b he's put out a book as well. And you may well have dealt with him. um, Southampton's greatest ever manager. Yes, sorry, I'm going there. Laurie McMenemy, Southampton's great. You have to say yes because he's the only one as well as a major trophy. Um, and in 1976, FA Cup final up against Manchester United. Uh, that's why uh, 
Super leagues there were. That's why the NBA systems where they played best of seven because best of seven, United win six of the games. Um, but on that one day, that one day, that's it. There's a um, saw doctor song to win just once. And that's kind of how it is as a football fan. That's all you need that one day. And that one day in May uh, when you can, a second division team can take on the might of Manchester United and beat them. Uh, and second division team, but a pretty good second division team as well with the likes of Channon and Osgood, uh, Nick Holmes and, and Peter Rodriguez. It was, a, it was a very good team. So, yeah, you'd have to say he's the greatest manager because he also got them to, to second in the uh, first division. Yep, and his, his memoir, I haven't read it yet, but it is in the Football Library along with Taking Latisse. Uh, by Matt Letizia, uh co-written with Graham Hiley, who is also the author of The Saints Miscellany and Saints on This Day, and Saints and Sinners Southampton's Odd Men, uh, which came out in 2016 on Pitch, uh, and you can find out more details on that at pitchpublishing.co.uk. I am trying to read as many pitch books as possible and talk to as many pitch authors as possible. Uh, for my book that comes out next year, uh, do you have one piece of advice that you give authors or journalists when they're writing? I think the good thing about pitch is that they let you get on with it. Right. Um, one bit of advice generally I always get is, is to, is to be, be strong when it comes to, and to stand your ground with editors, which is what I found with the taking that is. Uh, it's not a problem with pitch because they do give you that freedom and that, that trust to, to do it yourself. If you're starting out, I always say, make sure it's a subject that you're going to still enjoy by the end of it because uh, it, it can drive you mad. Yes. Um, so what you're saying is that pitch kind of give you uh, the option to wear a mask or not. And if you catch coronavirus, it's your own fault for not wearing a mask. No politics in the football library. Uh, so have you got essays to mark or are you in the home straight? Uh, no, um, we've done all that now. So uh, clear for a few a few weeks. Oh, fantastic. Well, enjoy whatever you do. Is there much? Are you going to watch the 100, the cricket? I may do. Um, At the moment, I'm watching a little bit of tennis, but obviously just obsessed by the football and uh, and spending hours trawling, looking through, trying to find if there's any way of getting a ticket for the the final. Oh, it's on telly. It's on TV. It's cheap enough. (laughs) We'll get to another Euro final. It'll be in London next time as well. I've waited. Well, that Germany game, we had 51 years in that. I first got into football about 1970. If anyone has connections, it's Southampton Solent sports journalist lecturer, Graham Hiley. Uh, thank you so much and have a good rest of your summer. Up the Saints and uh, I'll see you at St Mary's next season. Yeah, I do hope so. Yeah, look forward to that. Just like the library! Just like the library! Just like the library! Just like the library! Shh!